is Karen Smith. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the European Foreign Policy Unit. Um, welcome to this third roundtable in a series of roundtables that we're doing on EU foreign policy after Lisbon. Uh, we've had a roundtable on ESDP and we've had a roundtable on the role of national parliaments and parliaments in EU foreign policy making. This is the first of several roundtables that we're going to do, which looks at EU foreign policy from the outside perspective. It's trying to bring in um, outsider views on what uh, uh, is going on. Uh, and uh, some of you may notice that uh, Sharon Pardo was unable to be with us. Uh, he's from Ben Gurion University in Israel. He couldn't be here because of an emergency meeting on some sort of tenure thing tomorrow, one of those boring academic things that unfortunately we academics <laughs> constantly seem to spend our time uh, doing. Instead, I'm delighted uh, that Claire Spencer uh, was willing to step in uh, and give us her views. So the three speakers we have uh, tonight, and this is the order we'll go in an alphabetical order, are uh, Professor, professor Attila Eral, who is a professor at Middle Eastern Technical uh, University. He's written extensively on Turkish-EU relations, as well as also the Turkish-EU-Cyprus uh, uh, problem. So that uh, side of the Mediterranean, the eastern uh, side of uh, the Mediterranean. Um, there's also then Professor Richard uh, Gillespie from the University of Liverpool, who is currently running a uh, funded project on the Union for the Mediterranean, uh, significance for the Barcelona process. He has written extensively on the Euromed uh, agreements, uh, the Euromed uh, process. Uh, then uh, finally, Dr. Claire Spencer, who I'm um, so grateful that you could, <laughs> could make it. Uh, she is the head of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, a think tank on uh, international uh, affairs, and she has just come back uh, um, hours away sort of from a trip to Morocco, so she can sort of report almost directly what, uh, what she heard in uh, Morocco. Uh, the format that is we're going to follow is each speaker will speak for about 10 to 15 minutes, giving their sort of um, uh, understanding of uh, how EU uh, foreign policy is viewed uh, in the Mediterranean or from the other side of the Mediterranean. And then we'll open it up to discussion and the speakers will respond to each other and then also to questions uh, from the audience. We want to tell if you would like to begin. Thank you. Thank you for your kind invitation. and. Uh, it's not easy for me to represent the South, you know, it seems I'm the only person from, from the South, but I feel it in between rather than from the South, you know, so. But I will try to do my best to look at the uh, changing perceptions towards the EU and EU's foreign policy in the, in the South and as well as in, in Turkey. First of all, let me make a broad to, uh, assessment, you know, or introduction of of the context that we live in, you know, when, we, when I look at the broader context, uh, we witness dramatic changes in Europe and also in the Arab world. We face a turbulent environment, uh, and when I look at this environment, changing environment, crisis in Europe and, and transformations in the Arab world, is it? I mean, this is a challenging environment for for all actors, really. And crisis in Europe it does not make it easy for the EU to face such a challenging, challenging context. Uh, EU has, uh, when I look at the EU and its foreign policy, the Lisbon Treaty has opened new horizons uh, on, on, on the, in the area of foreign policy. 
And uh, in, the, in the Lisbon Treaty, foreign policy is one of the most you know, innovative aspects, uh, one of the most innovative aspects of the treaty. But the implementation of the, of the treaty and its you know, foreign policy dimension coincided with a, with a major change and, uh, in the environment, crisis in Europe and transformations in the, in the Arab world. And this is a very difficult environment really for, for, the, for EU's uh, foreign policy. There is an increasing pressure on the EU to act and to deliver, but the EU faces major difficulties as a result of the crisis, it has turned inward, and this inward orientation, which has resulted for the EU focusing on its own internal problems, creates major problems of delivery for the, for the EU in terms of also implementation of the, of the Lisbon Treaty in the area of foreign policy. I would like to characterize this, this context as the delivery deficit of the EU. And the delivery deficit of the EU is visible uh, in, in the South, you know, and I will look at five areas. There could be more areas, but I will look at five, I will touch on five areas in which the delivery deficit of the EU is visible in the South. The first area is deficit, you know, in the, in the coherence or common policy of the, of the EU. When we look at the Lisbon Treaty, Lisbon Treaty clearly tries to create coherence in the field of foreign policy and external relations and tries to make the EU more effective. But it has not been easy for the EU to be coherent and effective in, in, the, in, the, in the present context. You know, faced with major challenges in the Middle East. And this was clearly shown in the case of Libya, uh, the, major EU, the major EU countries, member states, have different orientations. I will not go into the detail, but we have seen a, a more unilateral approach of France and increasing you know, rivalries between leading uh, EU member states. And that has been a, a deficit in the common orientation, common political stance of the EU. And, and Lady Ashton was unable to coordinate and the, the foreign policy of the EU was unable to come up with a common political stance. So this is my first point. The second point is that, you know, as a result of this, let's say, lack of coherence, we see a, a deficit in a, in, a, in a political orientation of the EU. We see the continuation of the, of the more technical approach of the EU regarding the South, you know. This is uh, reflected in the, in the reformulation of the neighborhood policy when we look at the uh, the redefinition of the neighborhood policy. It is, it is now focusing on three M's, money, market, and mobility. But on all these issues, money, market, and mobility, the EU was unable to, again, to deliver, especially when it comes to, uh, to delivery, uh, when it comes to delivery on the major issue of movement of people. You know. There is also a new understanding of creating mobility schemes, but Again, in terms of implementation, the EU was unable to do anything new on, on the, trying to create a more conducive environment for the mobility of people. Third, uh, there is also deficit in terms of new incentives. And the new approach of the EU in the, in the neighborhood focuses more on differentiation, which 
is based on more for more and less for less. You know, in the case of Tunisia, more, and in the case of Syria, less for less. But you know, again, the EU is probably is trying to be more sensitive on, sense, on incentives. But when I look at the Arab world and the, the basic orientations in the Arab world, uh, the EU is not seen as forthcoming on incentives. You know, there is a strong reaction in the. Arab world to the no on the notion of conditionality. Conditionality is seen as, as, as a humiliating kind of a concept, you know, and, and this re reaction gains a popular support as dignity became, becomes a major slogan on the, on the Arab streets, you know, when people are focusing more on dignity, you know, the notion of conditionality is not seen, is not seen positively. Uh, Following this analysis, I would also like to underline that underline that there is also a deficit in the ownership of the reform process in the, in the South. You know, the reform process in the South is seen as basically a top-down process rather than a bottom-up, and many of the reform initiatives uh, formulated in the, in the in neighborhood policy or in the uh, in the Union of for, for the Mediterranean are all they are all viewed shaped by the by the EU, by the United States, by the West in general, by external actors in general, and uh, the, 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 there is not much of an enthusiasm to these kind of uh, reform initiatives. You know, definitely a new approach which focuses or which puts people at the center is necessary for owning the process and enhancing the the EU Mediterranean cooperation. And there is a need for a more inclusionary kind of. A, approach based on more societal ownership, but this is again lacking in the new new uh, initiatives in the, in the uh, neighborhood uh, policy. Finally, I also see deficits on a working flexible approach in the, in the Arab world. Now there is more focus on the notion of flexibility and you know, differentiated integration within the EU, but these discussions are basically limited to member states. You know. In the case of in candidate countries such as Turkey or neighboring countries, there is no new initiative on differentiation. And there is no new inclusionary kind of approach trying to bring neighboring countries or candidate countries into uh, institutional mechanisms in the EU. You know? So uh, this creates an exclusionary kind of an understanding. So flexible mechanisms are, are lacking. You know? and this results in, in my opinion, in the loss of trust in the institutions of the, of the EU and loss of ownership of the, of the reform process in general. The people uh, feel excluded and not part of, the, part of the institutional mechanisms of the EU. Probably I'm running out of time, but I cannot conclude without making some comments on, on Turkey. You know. EU and the, and, and, and the Arab world. When I look at the Turkey-EU relationship, there is a vicious circle now in the, in the relationship. You know, Turkey and the EU share a common neighborhood, but they, are, they have parallel approaches in the neighborhood rather than a converging or a joint approach. You know. And Turkey at the, at the present enjoys the level of popularity among the Arab public that the EU and the West has lost over the over the last decade, you know, and and also Turkey is a 
is a negotiating country with the EU, but there are no effective mechanisms of dialogue between Turkey and the EU on, on neighborhood issues. Well, Turkey is not part of the uh, EU when it comes to neighborhood issues. There is, not, there is no mechanism, really, uh, which uh, a mechanism of dialogue on, on common foreign security policy, on common security and defense policy, and on, on neighborhood issues. You know. And also, you know, when, when we look at the Arab world, that now there is a rising attraction of Turkey and there is a lot of debate on the relevance of the, the Turkish example or some even call the Turkish model, you know, which is a more uh, ambitious term. But in terms of Turkish experience, let's say, there is a lot of debate in the, in the Arab world and this is quite interesting because for a long time, debate on the Turkish model was initiated by, in the West, you know, especially by the United States. This time, it, it is more initiated in the Arab world, and I think this is a big change, really, you know, and, and uh, as a result, you know, there, there is a need for Turkey and the EU to find a way out of this vicious circle in their relationship, and in my opinion, collaboration in neighborhood issues could provide a way out in the in the in the relationship between Turkey and the and the EU. And there, there are many areas that the EU and Turkey could work together. I will not go into detail, you know. But the collaboration between Turkey and the EU on, on neighborhood issues could be useful for the reform process in the region and for regional ownership in the in the region because Turkey has increasingly become part of the. Uh, region, you know, and again, this is a major change. And as a result of the, uh, let's say, as a result of the this vicious circle in the relation between Turkey and the, and the EU, uh, the Turkish government increasingly is, is losing its reform initiative and is becoming more and more authoritarian, losing its democratic kind of orientation. Therefore, I would insist and emphasize that there is a need for a for a working relationship between Turkey and the EU, but this working relationship should also focus on now on neighborhood issues and especially on issues of economic reform and political reform in the region. You know, when Turkey and the West come together, you know, usually the focus is more on geopolitical significance of Turkey. But this time probably is quite the in that sense important that there is a possibility, a certain window of opportunity that this collaboration could focus more on, the, on political reform and, and political uh, collaboration. And finally, uh, to conclude, you know, I, when I look at EU, Turkey and the Arab world, as I said, you know, EU is passing through major challenges. It is now at this moment inward looking, but Definitely, there is a need for a more outward-oriented EU, and the, the, the Arab transformations, you know, the, what's going on in the region, create new opportunities really for the EU, for all actors, for Turkey and all the, all the actors. I hope the EU will come out of its crisis with a more outward orientation, which will lessen its uh, credibility crisis, renew the EU, make it more attractive, and help to create a more enhanced delivering capacity for the EU in the South as well. Thank you, thank you. Nice to have um, a, a moment of hope at the, uh, at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Richard. Right, well, um, I feel a bit of a fraud addressing this um, topic of how the um, EU policy has been affected or has affected um, 
southern perceptions, because I'm normally talking about things the other way around. Um, but what I'll do is make a few general comments and then concentrate on Egypt and, and Tunisia, um, contrasting those two cases, um, where I think there are some interesting contrasts. Um, initially, though, um, a few general points, and I think although we're concentrating on the last year, we have to remember what happened before, what the perceptions of the EU beforehand. So an initial general comment is that the colonial past is very, very recent in the case of these countries. It's only sort of 50 years or thereabouts. And over that time, we've seen um, an intensification of relations, starting off with trade, commercial agreements back in the 1960s, um, but then a gradual progression, um, more ambitious association agreements, and from the 1990s over the last 20 years we've seen the Barcelona process which has broadened the whole um, um, sort of ramifications of um, cooperation. So South has had huge um, exposure to the EU's normative discourse, especially through the Barcelona process, which spoke about democracy, human rights, intercultural dialogue, and, and so on. And also, of course, more recently through the, the neighbourhood um, policy at the bilateral level. So even before this, there was huge awareness, I think, of EU double standards, both within regimes and in um, civil society. But certainly, I think, um, Arab attitudes towards EU foreign policy have always um, been varied, um, and some actors have been relatively warmed to the idea of um, the EU as a normative power, whether they expressed it in those terms or not. Um, and a lot, certainly in comparison with the United States, preferring this kind of soft power um, approach, less, less threatening. Um, but others adopting much more of a realist view, not believing the EU rhetoric and um, believing that, um, well, either there were imperial intentions or that uh, EU was simply driven by security um, issues and quite a bit of truth in that. And then how have these perceptions begun to change over the, the, the last year? Um, I think we have to be very wary of generalizations. That's what I'm here to make some country-specific comments, but of course, even within the countries, there's huge variety. And I'd like to suggest, first of all, that perceptions of the EU may be likely to change most in those countries where insurrections have taken place, where revolutionary processes um, have uh, been attempted, um, where people have been drawn into dramatic political struggles, and have really put the EU under rather more pressure to respond in one way or another. Whereas one might say that, well, perhaps perceptions are less likely, to, I don't know if this is going to work out or not, advancing <laughs> it, less likely to be changing in countries where there is more of a controlled process from above, as in the monarchies, Jordan and, and Morocco, where there are regime strategies of introducing a degree of reform to avert a popular revolution. But we also need to remember that there are other dynamics independently of the Arab Spring that may be affecting perceptions of the EU and the kind of power or international organisation um, that it is. 
Um, and I think this, this does apply um, to um, Morocco, which um, I won't say too much about Morocco, mm -hmm. um, talk about it. But um, this was arguably the country with the closest political relations to the EU um, prior to um, the Arab Spring. And yet um, the relationship is breaking down for reasons not directly to do with the Arab Spring, but I would say it's um, at least there is a risk of um, disruption in the relationship, first of all because of the vetoing of the uh, fisheries agreement, but even more importantly, an agricultural liberalisation agreement, which is extremely important in the context in which it is taking place, and which may also be um, thrown out by the, the European Parliament. So Moroccans are asking, you know, well, what is Europe's game? They seem to be very warm to us one minute, and then the next, when it comes down to important issues, European protectionism um, asserts itself. So really, you know, are we in a situation where there can be common benefits, common gains, um, or are we in a sort of zero-sum game in our relations with the, with the EU? Um, I think we also need to bear in mind, um, it's very easy to criticise the EU, most of us make a career out of it, um, but we have to consider um, what might reasonably have been expected of the EU over the last year um, in terms of supporting processes of, of change. And um, here I think uh, one needs to bring out contrasts and comment on the EU and um, Egypt. Uh, sorry, the, um, Tunisia and Egypt. EU has clearly been prioritising Tunisia um, over the last year. Partly because it was the first to rise up, but partly because it's one of the easiest cases that you can actually give support. It's more manageable, less daunting than other um, challenges. Um, there had been a genuine collapse of the regime, the country which had, in relative terms at least, a functioning state of administration, which used to push through reform. Country relatively small, a country that had achieved quite a bit of economic progress, processing the rights of women in comparison with other um, Arab countries. Its trade was already very strongly oriented towards um, Europe. And so all of these reasons then the EU kind of leapt on Tunisia and said, well, we can prioritise. One stage it seemed almost as if they were only going to help or try to help um, the Tunisian um, process. Contrast Egypt, and it's a completely different sort of task that the EU uh, and, and others are faced with in terms of population size, the economic situation, social structure, um, rural urban balance, and quite apart from regime considerations, the nature of the military, um, and, and so on. Here, the EU could not really contemplate making any kind of impact on development challenges, certainly not in, in a short um, period of time, even if it had been uh, welcomed to um, do so. So very weak prospects, I think, in, in the case of Egypt, for those kind of developmental um, reasons. Almost certainly I think one has to say European officials were bound to be um, disappointed by the response of the EU. 
because they were asking in Egypt for billions of euros of aid, um, whereas you know a, a, ten, a few tens of millions um, perhaps does make an, a difference in the short term in a country like um, Tunisia. I, I, my impression of, of Tunisia is that there a substantial proportion of the population has reacted fairly favourably, fairly positively to EU policies post-Arab Spring. This, despite the fact that the EU had worked with Ben Ali as a great partner and so on, but I think that's offset by the fact that the, the, the greatest complicity with Ben Ali was clearly from France. Um, so you know, Sarkozy takes some of the flack um, on that. <laughs> well, Sorry. yes, perhaps all of it. Um, whereas um, the EU has been able to do things that have made a reasonably good impression in terms of um, assisting in the setting up the um, Constituent Assembly, organisation of elections, things like that, where the EU has got quite a lot of experience worldwide. Um, helpful things, not um, imposing too much of, a, of any kind of model. And that has made uh, a good impression, as has a degree of support for civil society um, organisations. Um, and also, I think, helpful there, of course, is that a lot of Tunisians have been relatively pro-European for one reason or another, including within the, within the Islamist movement. Um, and the starkest contrast is, is clearly with um, Egypt, where I think we find blanket criticism, condemnation, denunciation of the EU from above and, and from below. Um, here the EU was extremely slow to break with Mubarak, to give any kind of political support to the opposition, and it's remained extremely timid um, ever since, for a number of reasons. First, it's a much more difficult regime to actually overthrow, military factors, etc., privilege, clientelism, everything. And coupled with this, I think, where the EU is falling down is that it doesn't have any kind of strategic vision of the region, of what it wants to do there, how it might contribute to um, change. Um, it's clearly very different if you're faced with a successful insurrection, you can move in and assist new authorities and um, NGOs. Completely different if you've got a resistant um, regime that is still quite strong and to turn the tables and help the opposition gain the upper hand, put them in the driving seat, or uh, to put them in, but assist them, um, very, very um, different. Here, I think what is very relevant is that the EU is very sadly lacking in experts with in-depth knowledge of the Arab world, and it's got far too many officials who've got um, either technical briefs or, or very narrowly defined um, political um, briefs. A third reason for caution over Egypt clearly is the Salafist movement and how it has advanced um, and disputing um, popularity with the Muslim Brotherhood within the um, Islamist movement. The Muslim Brotherhood far less hostile to European values. It's also, of course, hugely important um, Egypt's role in relation to Middle East peace diplomacy, perhaps less relevant than in the past, but still, <coughs> the EU looks still to Egypt for that reason. 
and let's not forget also a desire not to um, uh, uh, not to upset the United States, which is still supporting Egypt even more strongly than the EU. So there we have officials who are very unimpressed by EU foreign policy, are essentially ignoring it. The EU has no influence at all um, on the ground. Um, at the same time, Egypt is quite a problem, mentioned before the brief of the Union for the Mediterranean, and it's rest in peace. <laughs> um, but um, in relation to the regional level of things, Egypt is, is really being very um, obstructive to this um, EU and other attempts to launch regional activity in solidarity with um, popular struggles. Egypt is very focused on itself, and recently there was an attempt to hold a, a ministerial conference on agriculture, which not just the EU, but quite a few Arab countries were interested in, but Egypt said no, um, and they, they vetoed it. And of course they've been the, um, the co-presidency of the um, Union for the Mediterranean, they've just, just given up about um, at least a year after their mandate expired. Um, I was going to say something about Syria and Libya very briefly, but I won't. Well, just Libya, I think, needs to come into the discussion because of the military intervention and because we were being asked to consider whether use perceived in normative terms or um, as a, a bully or what have you. And clearly, the military intervention there um, has affected some perceptions but probably not really of the EU, mm. because the intervention is not seen as an EU thing. Uh, there's, a, there's a dispute within the EU over it. It's seen in terms of NATO, Britain, France, perhaps, and, and so on. Um, so to conclude, I mean, we have to be wary of um, generalization. Um, and yes, quite a, a, a limp conclusion has to be that um, probably the e EU act action is changing perceptions for the better in some places, for the worse in others, and having very little impact on perceptions um, in, in, um, in, in, in other countries. Um, where I think there is some consensus, and I've sort of found this both um, on, on both sides of the Mediterranean, is um, <coughs> a lot of people are saying the EU should simply be more honest. It needs more clarity, more honesty. It should be actually defining its own interests far more than it has, um, declaring those interests, and um, that if it were to do that, then there would be far more respect, at least, for the EU, um, notwithstanding the shambles it is in at the moment. Rather than, you mean rather than quoted in this sort of rhetoric, yeah. rather than non-limited rhetoric. Yeah. Great, thank you very much, Richard Clare. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, and I don't wish to repeat what everyone else has said, but I will uh, concur with Richard. I feel as I'm here slightly under false pretenses, even though I fancy myself as a Mediterranean Brit, as you can tell by my Spanish timing just now. <laughs> I'm not quite the real thing. Um, and I also concur with, it's interesting, I've come, but one of the reasons I, I struggled to get here was we've had a seminar all day on education reform in Egypt. And I'm delighted to report back that the European Union didn't get a mention all day. So there we are, that rather situates the debate uh, in Egypt. 
Um, I haven't also, this is another health warning, haven't really looked at the polling data, although as Karen rightly said, I'm just back from Morocco where I'll describe briefly what we're up to there. We're working with the British Council on setting up a network beautifully called YAMNI, uh, Young Arab Analyst Network International, to make YAMNI work. Um, and it comprises the majority of uh, Moroccans. It's, this is funded by the British government and the British Council. Moroccans, Algerians, Tunisians, uh, Egyptians and Jordanians. And as Richard has alluded to, I think the focus of EU, certainly since the last year, has been on the revolutionary states and the post-revolutionary states. And I think we're going to have to change the terminology soon, but the Arab Spring states uh, of Tunisia and Egypt and Morocco and Jordan as examples of, of states who've already committed themselves, whether in practice this is happening or not, to top-down reform processes, processes. And as we've seen in Morocco, we've had elections recently, which at least have seen the emergence more publicly of an Islamist party. But let us not forget, unlike in Nahda, in Tunisia, the PJD in Morocco has already legalized, has already played a role in politics. And uh, many people I've spoken to in Morocco are depicting the new government as the loyal opposition to his majesty, if you can see it in that light. In other words, there is a sense that devolving power, although that is part of the reform program with a new constitution in Morocco, has not yet been achieved, but they may be moving down that path. So it's a question of pace. So to tackle this and to keep to my 10 minutes, we've helpfully been given some exam questions. Uh, the one being, the first one being, is the EU viewed as a coherent and united foreign policy factor by non-EU states? Well, again, I haven't looked at the polling data, but on a scroll poll of those who attended um, the seminar uh, last week, the workshop I was at last week, and just talking to the wonderful taxi drivers, um, around Morocco, that they must send them to taxi driver quote school. And I asked them, you know, how do you know, you must, how's life in Morocco, just straight off the plane? You've just had elections, successful, everything else. And they always say to me things like, Madame, you can change the faces, you cannot change the reality. Yeah. <laughs> it was the same thing after the Constitution. When I was there, um, when was it July, they had a referendum on the new Constitution. And the phrase there was, Madame, you can change the texts, you cannot change the reality of this country, etc., which sums up the views, certainly, of the taxi drivers that you meet. So I think what this tells me, and certainly going backwards and forwards to the region in recent years, both pre and post the events of last year, we have to accept that the EU as a set of policy instruments and institutions is something which has only been partially grasped over many years by the large majority, uh, of people in North Africa and including Morocco, which I'll address most. Um, I think if you're in a government agency, if you're lobbying <coughs> for the enhanced neighborhood, uh, sorry, the enhanced status uh, um, package, which Morocco certainly has over and above its neighbors, you'll know the details. Um, but I think it's true to say the general population, this is where the EU doesn't get any credit, are probably vaguely aware of some of the te technical assistance programs where there are EU flags saying they funded things. But primarily their vision of Europe, I think as, as Richard has, has alluded to, comes through the old colonial relationship transformed into a post-colonial relationship. And now, as many of my Tunisian friends are saying, at last we're in the post-post-colonial phase because this relationship with France 
And let us just look at uh, where France is in two misery. It's the primary investor. The Italians are muscling in, and they're already there. But the most uh, foreign direct investment in private businesses uh, in Tunisia come from France. Uh, and the French presence in the economy is, is, very, is very visible. Uh, but what effect is this having, and how has it transformed over the last year, both in Tunisia, but particularly in Morocco? I think the effect of the events last year, and certainly the knowledge that people in the region do have about the financial crisis and the unemployment crises uh, in Europe, is, in their view, a, a, a greater equalizing of the relationship, which explains the change of mood when it comes to money markets and more for more and less for less and mobility. Huge cynicism over mobility, I think rightly founded actually. And I talked to a young Moroccan uh, diplomat who'd been part of the mission, who'd been in Brussels talking to different commissions about opening up uh, Europe to greater mobility for Moroccans. And she said they went with a document, a shopping list of can we send some Moroccans to do stage, you know, spend time in, for example, IT companies or different sectors. The whole lot got scrubbed out before they even started discussing them. And the only mobility measure that was on offer was greater, a greater number of Erasmus, uh, Tempus Erasmus students. That's what Europe is offering in the way of mobility. Uh, mobility in terms of according visas, well, we've all saw what happened with those... Uh, those Tunisians uh, who got themselves as far as Italy and then tried to get into France, 20,000 of them, uh, even under the Schengen Agreement, there was a point at which we, this was watching this, I was actually in Nice in the south of France while this was going on, with my mother and I was telling her, you know, wait a minute, we're going to see a Tunisian illegal migrant running along the promenade des Anglais, followed by a carabinieri or, you know, French police. It didn't actually happen. But I found it very paradoxical that the time that uh, President Sarkozy was trying to dismantle the Schengen Agreement in order to stop these Tunisians coming in, at the same time that he and other European leaders were welcoming democracy and welcoming the changes in Tunisia, uh, the Tunisians themselves were taking on board with no preparation uh, what amounted to 200,000 Libyan refugees with no questions. And I actually think in terms of, I don't think they did this for this reason, but it's good investment for their future, because just last week, thanks to Turkey, there was a business uh, conference uh, convened by the Turks in Tunisia, which brought uh, Libyan businesses, Tunisians and uh, Turks together to talk about you know, regional cooperation and investment. So I think you know, they've been quite light-footed. I'm straying away from the Moroccans. What could I say? The fishing accords, which we've mentioned, or lack of them rather, I think mystified quite a few Moroccans insofar as in the post-Lisbon treaty world they don't quite understand how it's possible that the European Parliament can actually wade in and have any say over these things at all. In the past, negotiations were held, I mean the council would meet and the general frameworks would be accepted on both sides between foreign ministers and then the details would be thrashed out in the commission. So suddenly out of the blue, I believe 10 months after the existing fishing cord ran out, suddenly it's not going to be renewed because of reasons associated with fishing grounds being off the Western Sahara, which as we know, uh, the Moroccan Sea is an integral part of Morocco and a number of European parliamentarians don't. Uh, I believe that was the source of the issue. The talk in Morocco now is making a virtue out of this uh, apparent EU snub. 
um, in terms of, well, why don't we develop, we don't need these 200 uh, Spanish, and they are largely Spanish fishing boats floating off our coast, why don't we develop our own fisheries? Uh, we don't actually need the European Union in the overall package of funding we get from the, the EU, and Morocco is the biggest recipient of, uh, of European bilateral funding. Um, we don't actually need this anymore. So I think there's a dose of healthy cynicism, which I think Richard described, scepticism about the rhetoric, and getting down to business as usual, which is, in the case of Morocco, 70% of foreign direct investment comes from two countries alone. So before we get excited about Gulf money and Brazilians and this new idea the Moroccans have for tri-continental uh, investment models with Portugal, Brazil, Latin America and West Africa, which is an interesting one to follow, by the way, but it's not yet an alternative. The two states who invest 70% of FDI in Morocco are France, well ahead, followed by Spain. So I think that is where the focus is going to be, and that's where it is at the moment. Um, Morocco traditionally has very good relations with France, and I think manages to smooth over every, any bumps in the relationship. Not so good with, uh, with Spain, though I believe um, the recently elected Prime Minister Rajoy has just been, just yesterday, I have yet to catch up on what was said, but he was enthusiastically um, in Rabat in, uh, in Morocco talking about Spanish-Moroccan cooperation and greater Spanish investment. On the Spaniards, though, one of the tales going around Morocco is that uh, more visibly seen on the streets and around uh, Morocco itself are unemployed construction workers from Spain, so plumbers, electricians, bricklayers, looking for work in Morocco, because one thing that uh, Moroccans are becoming aware of is that the youth unemployment level in southern Spain, which I believe is 40%, is actually now worse than it is in Morocco with all its problems. So rather than this being seen in a sort of schadenfreude, well, it's seen in a schadenfreude sort of way, in a, in a sour grape sort of way, it gives them a sense of, well, you know, so we can accept <laughs> wagging fingers from the Spaniards, you know, they can't fix their own economy, they're in a worse crisis than we are. It actually enhances uh, national confidence and the thought that, you know, we are actually slowly seeing this relationship with Europe equalised. So when it comes to the normative power, the self-interested uh, power, which is our second question, or even the bully, frankly, this, this talk of conditionality is first and foremost not credible. We've talked about conditionality in the past, and I will illustrate this by a wonderful scene which could have been repeated in Morocco, but was in the British Council here last summer. The British Council brought over delegations of young Tunisians and young Egyptians, and uh, our Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg addressed them, saying, we've heard your concerns, we're interested in helping you. Uh, we're now elaborating a new form of conditionality, pro-democracy, we're on your side. Which was responded to almost immediately by a young Tunisian woman, I think no more than 25, actually leaning back in her chair, wonderfully as she said it, and she said, why should we believe you? Where were you in December 2010? We don't want your conditionality. We want you to listen to us because we know more than you do about our world and what we need, and you need to respond. Now, the room, you can imagine, full of British Council officials who are somewhat shaken by this. But I think we have to, on the European side, get used to more of this, perhaps not quite so stridently, but more of the underlying attitude, particularly amongst uh, a younger generation who, let us not forget, is now the majority in this region. They may not be controlling things, but they certainly have energy. And unless things go horribly wrong, and of course, you know, as Richard has also 
suggested things are going to be very complicated in Egypt. We do have the rise of different Islamist movements, but I think this is part of, if you like, a readjusting in the region in this post-post-colonial era, where, for example, in Morocco, they still haven't resolved the issue of uh, language and education. It's still the case if you want to get a good job, you will go through a French and increasingly English language system, and if you go through the Arabic language system, you will not get a good job. Language policy is coming to the fore. But there is a great appetite for looking for other cultural reference points. Again, going back to Tunisia, one of my Tunisian friends sent me an email attachment and said, look, we started the occupying movement. Look, it started here. Even though know, Tahrir Square is obviously getting all the credit, certainly down the road from here. Um, you know, there is this sense of pride that we've unleashed something about you know, a questioning identities, not having things imposed on us anymore. So, meanwhile, the older generation is still debating, and I went to a dinner last night in London where the older generation was still saying, why is political Islam appealing to this younger generation? They're still trying to work out what's happening. I think the younger generation have already, to some degree, worked out where they are in this equation, and they're not wondering why they're affiliated to things, they're wondering what to do about it. I think we are seeing, in this greater activism in, in the younger generation, eventually a reshaping of policies. And there will be, I think, coming out of this as far as the EU is concerned, a more differential attitude uh, towards Europe, which is not entirely negative. I think a lot of the, the conferences we've been to over the years, Richard, we've seen from the South a lot of complaining about agricultural policy and the double standards of the EU, all of which, up to a degree, is, is justified. What I see in this younger generation is a more constructive, okay, we all know that you know, whatever you say isn't what you do. It's much more pragmatic. But if you will just listen to us, we want this, that, and the other. And I think mobility will be top of the list. You know, they, it's, it's really incomprehensible how we can uh, deepen and strengthen relations with this region if every time somebody comes up with a bright idea, they can't get a visa. Uh, there was an open letter on one of the Tunisian websites complaining about the conditions in which people have to queue outside in the rain in Tunis to get visas to France and saying, come on, Monsieur l'Ambassadeur, be true to all your, your great speeches. We want a decent waiting room, at the very least, <laughs> to do this. So I think this is I'm trying to capture the atmosphere um, of the times. How has EU's, the EU's reaction to the Arab Spring uh, affected any of this? This is the last exam question. I would say people are very aware that at the Deauville summit, and here actually, incidentally, Sarkozy gets much of the credit because he was the one hosting the G8. Was it G8 or G20? The G20 came anyway. He was hosting the summit, and it was in France, where $20 billion were promised uh, to Tunisia and Egypt, and then in the summer in Cannes, uh, an extra, I think it was 34 billion was added to the total. None of this has arrived. Now you can say a lot of it has been channeled through um, international financial institutions, investment banks, including the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. They are at the technical study phase. But I think people are looking at, if you want to actually act on your concern and interest in investing in us, that's the size of funding we want to see. It's not these little trickles here and there. I think you'll also hear more complaints about the bureaucracy, ironically given that uh, Morocco particularly is known for its own bureaucracy, the bureaucracy that small and medium enterprises, which again are being encouraged by EU programs, have to go through to actually get any funding and the forms you have to fill in and the accountability measures is putting off people who've not had any experience of working with the EU 
uh, in the past. But all in all, I think the verdict is more positive than negative insofar as I've described this equalization, at least psychologically, equalization of the, 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 the relationship means that, I think as far as France and Tunisia is concerned, the Tunisians have been remarkably forgiving, it seems to me, given the position of France, uh, I was about to say this time last year, no, it should improve this time last year, this, this time December 2010, and certainly we all know the, the actions of the French foreign minister and the private claims, and I think someone has also written a book, uh, as they often do in France, on the networks which existed between French business interests and the, and the mafia, as they call it, of Ben Ali and the Trambelsis and the previous regime. I think they're being realistic across the region where trade relations, uh, Tunisia, its relations, exports and imports with the EU is 80% uh, of the, the trade relations, so they're not going to get rid of the EU, even though there is this hunger for diversifying, this hunger for learning English as a vehicle, not so much to trade with the UK, but to trade further afield with, with Asia and to, to pursue all sorts of other opportunities in that way. And I think they're being hard-headed and realistic but that you know, while the Moroccans themselves with their tri-continental initiative and in their own investment model uh, in, uh, in West Africa are trying to look for new initiatives, they're also reacting to the fact that their border with Algeria is still closed. So one of the EU's early initiatives to trade more directly with a united and horizontally integrated uh, Maghreb Union uh, is not going to be realised until that issue is resolved. So I would say it's more positive than negative, but for not necessarily for the reasons the European Union might like, and not because they recognise that Lisbon is a more coherent, vibrant model. They're much more interested in individual European states, and they're the ones they see acting, investing, and uh, active in their region. Great, thank you very much. All right, we've got about uh, 30 minutes uh, for uh, question and answer. Um, and uh, if you do have a question, could you please say who you are? Uh, and perhaps if you're a student here, what program uh, you're studying? Thanks, um, I have to leave, unfortunately. But my name is Katerina Dalakura. I'm in international relations here in Messi. I have a comment um, on, on your comment. Um, you contrasted Tunisia and Egypt. And you pointed out what, what is, I think, of course, an accurate picture that in the case of Tunisia, uh, the EU was able to come in and assist, presumably in a technical way, with the transition process or the arrival of change of, uh, of regime. Whereas we see no such thing in Egypt. And you attributed this to the different levels of development uh, between the two countries. Now, I want to suggest that the difference is not that, but the fact that in Egypt, the situation has not been uh, uh, resolved. Um, whereas in Tunisia, it has. And that essentially, the EU does not have, inherently is unable to do anything about this. It is not as an institution able to deliver uh, the push in one way or, or the other. Arguably, no outsiders are able to, but particularly the EU because of the nature of its, of its foreign policy. Mm. If the situation in Egypt was resolved, whichever way mm. it, it would have been, I think the EU would be able to come in 
with its programs and, 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 and make a contribution. In other words, the problem is not the lack of political expertise in the EU. The EU can only do the technical stuff. And, and well, it's a comment more than, more, more, more than a question, and I'd like your thoughts on it. Do you want to come back then, or do you want me to gather more questions? Um, I'd quite like to answer that. Yes. Um, no, I mean, I, I agree with you entirely. I thought that I, well, I alluded to some of the kind of regime contrasts, um, which is, um, um, yes, and that, that could have been um, developed more. Certainly, I think that the EU does the technical stuff best. And you know, I, I, I think that the EU's been lacking in strategic vision. For to have that though, you've got to talk about the personnel and expertise and, and also how the EU is structured um, and, and so on. Um, yeah, I, I think that even if there, there was a more um, sort of a, a, a genuine political revolution in Egypt, I still think the EU would, would find it very difficult to make a big impact in, in the country, um, especially at this point because it is so discredited um, amongst civil society activists. Mm. I mean, really, it's, it's lost a lot of credibility, mm. and a lot of NGOs are looking for other sources, and well, they're receiving other sources of aid. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm a bit sceptical about, about that part of your argument. Political mm -hmm. uh, a long-standing UAC's member. It's interesting talking about Tunisia and Egypt, because uh, from his, from being a historian, um, from a historical perspective, I would still argue that there is a very distinct um, legacy from 1956 and Suez. In other words, <laughs> Egypt's a hot, uh, uh, tricky, tricky wicket. It's very well clear Tunisia is a much more manageable, it's a much more safer agenda, so to speak. Uh, we think about the profound implications of what happened in 1956, especially, uh, uh, of course, in terms of the um, diversions developed between Britain and France, and, uh, and also, and of course, Israel. Um, the situation there, of course, is that the Suez effectively um, galvanised French policy to pursuing an independent line for the next 10, 15 years, whereas it led to you know Britain falling in line, you know falling in WEU and whatever happened in Washington, just you know following through there because of all the you know the, the alarm bells which had rung out from Washington, and I, I would argue that you know there's still a very very important historical legacy from. From Suez in 1956, and that Tunisia is entirely different, you know, it's an entirely different wicket altogether, it's a much safer agenda. I'm a master student here in international relations. I have two questions. Um, the first is whether um, any of you know if the US and the EU have coordinated their positions at all um, in regards to the Arab Spring, um, or if they are pursuing diverging national foreign policy. And I guess the second question is mainly directed um, at Professor Gillespie. Sorry if I mispronounced your name. Um, I was wondering if you um, could talk at all if you considered furthering the Union for the Mediterranean as part of its response to um, the foreign policy towards North Africa and the Middle East in light of the Arab Spring. I studied the Union for the Mediterranean in my undergraduate, and I'm interested um, in kind of how they've approached this institution after the Arab Spring. Who would like to? Do you want to start off at the beginning of the Mediterranean, and then you can do the US and EU? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Union for the Mediterranean, unfortunately, has been 
paralysed almost since it was like it been born. It's almost stillborn. Um, you know, it's it, it's um, been hugely affected even more than the Barcelona process by mm -hmm. Middle East tensions um, and and so on. Um, and um, it's, it's I mean a lot of the projects that it, it sought to launch um, are still in the planning phase. None of them are actually operational three years after it was launched at a hugely expensive summit in in, um, in in Paris. I mean they are trying to introduce one or two small projects I think on women um, to um, respond rather belatedly to, to, to the Arab Spring. But these are essentially this kind of endorsement of an existing French project. Um, and really I can't see the Union for the Mediterranean um, um, doing very much, partly because a lot of EU actors want to see it die slowly. They're not prepared to bury it because it was Sarkozy's um, child, his pet project, and if re-elected it will carry on for some time. Um, and the Commission, of course, because it was an autonomous or semi-autonomous um, initiative with its own secretariat, um, then you know, the Commission obviously had reservations. Um, EU as well, uh, sorry, UK has been extremely uh, unhelpful um, because their attitude is well, if Sarkozy wants it, he can have it, but it won't be anything to do with Europe or yeah. EU. Um, and then you know, the, the UK has also got all these things about the um, Lisbon Treaty and how um, EU foreign policy representation is, is affected by that. And that helps to block renewal of the co-presidency, which is the, the one innovation of interest, I think, in that project, co an attempt at co-ownership with a, a, an EU president um, and, uh, and a southern president, initially France and um, Egypt. But it's interesting at the moment, neither can the EU get its act together and choose a new um, country to, um, or, or, or allow Catherine Ashton to represent the EU. Um, nor are there any Arab countries that seem capable of replacing Egypt. Um, theoretically, maybe Jordan or some country like that may eventually come forward, but mm -hmm. that's been a huge problem of um, trying to get southern representation coordinated. And um, they thought things were getting better when um, um, Amrami, the Moroccan, mm -hmm. became director of the <laughs> Secretariat. <laughs> But he wasn't there for very long because he's now the foreign ministry. No, no, no. So yeah, it, um, nothing much is happening at the regional level, and that is um, being decried by a lot of the actors. And um, one comment that's um, been reported to me by several people is that in the south there is a perception of a lack of seriousness mm. by the EU because it allowed this thing to be set up, and yet. Europeans even are not investing in it and trying to make it work. They're happy to let it just die peacefully. If I can just pick up on that, I think the, the problem with the Union for the Mediterranean was a design flaw from the start where the idea was to be a big project of projects 
which would implicate or at least address the interests across the region in depolluting the Mediterranean with examples such as civilian rescue missions in the Mediterranean, all of which was assumed to implicate um, everyone as much. And the closest this initiative got uh, to signing anything extremely useful was a water report in 2010, April 2010, which of course, as ever, because this whole initiative includes 54 different uh, member states and entities fell foul of the Israel-Palestine dispute in terms of wording about occupied territories and territories under occupation. And I think across the region, people, again, have not seen this as serious. If you can scupper a whole water accord where 20 million people in the region do not have access to drinking water um, is, is a great shame. It became prey to politics as usual. And then some of the other projects, like the solar energy ones, uh, have been reliant on the private sector stepping up. Well, if anyone knows anything about private sector investment, they're not going to want to go through a 54-member <laughs> organization in Barcelona to decide whether they're going to put solar panels in southern Morocco. And sure enough, Desertec, which is this great initiative, is talking directly to the Moroccans and pretty much you know, ignoring the Union for the Mediterranean. So absolutely, it needs completely redesigning. And I hadn't actually thought, yes, if Sarkozy loses the elections, it will get buried. Not, I have to say, because of the Brits. I don't think anyone's listening to the Brits on <laughs> this sort of subject or anything to do with Europe at the moment until the financial crisis is resolved and we're not a minority of one. So I think that's, that's an idea. Um, the, the US and EU, yes, inform me there's coordination. As I say, I think the Deauville and Cannes summits with the large sums of money through investment banks, interestingly, it was the idea of the US to bring in the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which hitherto only had a mandate in the former, uh, the former Soviet Union and Eastern Central Europe, and actually is slightly concerned about moving into areas they don't actually have a history in dealing with, but they, there's a positive in that they've got a long experience of um, economies and in transformation and you know, on the technical side of the good. But as I said before, the money hasn't turned up. Um, there's also been coordination, as we saw, in, in and outside the, the context of NATO. NATO was brought in after the UN resolutions where France, then the UK and the US uh, put together the mission in Libya. But as Richard rightly points out, that wasn't an EU mission. So I think you'll see US uh, coalitions of the willing with Europeans who are prepared to do things. Uh, but I think the US attitude increasingly, particularly in this election year, but even before, was that for once in your lives, Europe, this is your backyard, you take the lead on what's happening. And I think, you know, as we saw in the progression of the conflict uh, in, uh, in Libya, the US position was very much, you know, as soon as we can, we're handing over uh, to Europeans, and it was essentially not an EU or indeed even a NATO mission, except with a great help. Of, uh, of our Turkish colleagues, but a coalition of bits of NATO capability with the Qataris, with the Jordanians, by the way, someone spotted their planes supplying arms, uh, the Turks, of course, and uh, France, who supplied most of the helicopters, and Britain uh, supplied as many helicopters and flights as it could, having had defence cutbacks, and that's basically how things put together. Say something on this issue. EU-US convergence or divergence. For example, when we make a comparison of the Central European transition and what's going on in the Middle East now, you see that in the case of Central European transition, there was more 
yes. convergence. You know, now yeah. the EU and the US are more cautious, really, in yeah. terms of, let's say, approaching the, the region. And as a result, you know, there is more room for regional actors. And mm -hmm. probably this is also related with major changes in the international system. You know, US and the EU are no longer as important in the in the international system as before, you know, during the Cold War, you know, during, as in the 70s or 80s, uh, the international system is becoming more multipolar and you know, there are new actors, etc. There is also more room for regional actors. I think one of the critical issues here is that the EU and the US, they don't know how to relate mm -hmm. to the regional actors. This is the case with Turkey, yeah. with Iran, even with Egypt, you know, there, there are all kinds, kinds of ambiguities and how to relate to the, to the regional actors, and there's more room for regional actors to man maneuver and to, you know, to yeah. affect uh, the regional dynamics. You know, I think this is, this is a major change you know, in terms of, and there's, in that sense, more regional autonomy and autonomy of the, of the regional actors, and we will see how this will unfold, really, you know, in terms of the US orientation or the EU orientation. Probably in this changing context, EU probably has more to do or has the more has more potential, but because of the crisis, economic crisis, as I try to characterize, the EU is is not really taking a, an active stance in the in the in the MENA in the Middle East region, you know, and this is one of the crucial problems. And this is most now specifically reflected in Syria. For example, and you look at the Syrian case, you see the cautious orientation of, of EU and also the United States and Turkey is becoming increasingly more active and Iran and you know that there's an increase in Russia, you know, an increasing rivalry of these actors in Syria, you know, which is which is which is so risky really, you know. But uh, I think the Syrian case and it's the Syrian case is extremely important in affecting all kinds of balances in the Middle East region. How Syria will evolve will determine most of the things, you know, mm -hmm. in the region. You know. And there, the, we will see whether there will be more collaboration with the U.S. and the EU. But it is not coming. You know. mm -hmm. It's not coming. Especially the Syrian case is more telling on that issue. And we can take a couple of questions together because we're running out of time. First here. Yeah, I'm Uriol Bar from Barcelona, and I'm still in the master in global politics. So I'd like to make a short comment and. And a question. I worked in the Secretariat of the Union for the Mediterranean during 2010, and apart from a brand new secretariat paid by the Catalan and Spanish authorities, I would say from first. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful place. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a very beautiful place, but there's nothing more than this. But I just wanted to state that even if being a French initiative, uh, it was the Spanish authorities who, who paid for it, you know, like in launching this. So this is a case of one of the big for using another member state for launching an initiative, I think it's an important point. But taking the Professor Gillespie point that we should, it's easy to criticize the EU, but uh, we probably should see what the EU can do. Uh, I was wondering uh, to what extent we can consider the Arab uprisings in Tunisia and in Egypt as a result or a direct result of the EU policy towards these countries uh, in, the, in the years before that in the sense of enhancing civil society and the stuff. And I'm, I'm not sure if the EU had an alternative to the policy it carried out during those years, probably it had. 
but at the end, probably what we have now is a consequence of that policy, and it is not being recognized. I'm just wondering if that is the case. We're going, to, we're going to take three questions together, so one more. Yeah, thank you. Um, <coughs> uh, my name is Ines Omega and I'm a PhD student here at the AI department. Um, and I would like to come back to the point uh, your professor just made about the room for regional actors. Um, I'm just wondering in, uh, to what extent uh, what you just said about uh, um, the surprising forgivingness of the Tunisians, for example, on the one hand, and what you said earlier about the delivery deficit, um, cannot be traced back to this to this lack of absence of regional actors or actually other powers, um, for that matter, in the region. Because apart from Europe or the member states, actually, I don't see anyone really taking any initiative here. Neither the US, as mentioned earlier, in, um, in, in the Arab world at the moment in general, maybe um, Morocco, Tunisia, or um, Libya and Syria. Um, there is, of course, some, some attempt by, for example, Turkey, um, but I don't see that being strong enough to be an attractive alternative to these countries. Mm -hmm. And please correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Maybe this is the last, last question. Um, my name is Joan Nagan, I'm a PhD candidate from the University of Bath. got quite a broad general question for all the panelists and then a very specific one, if that's okay. Um, given that uh, the major concern it would seem for most of the countries um, in the Med is mobility, and that's the thing that the EU member states are least willing to compromise on, if a secondary concern was money and that's not coming through quick enough, what cards does the EU have left to play, given the financial constraints it's facing at the moment, to incentivise countries to engage, um, can, you know, in order to offer any real incentives as well? And um, on the specific question, very quickly, um, I was um, very interested to hear, in terms um, of bilateral versus EU um, tensions, that if there's a general perception that the EU is not taking coherent action in the um, region as a whole at the moment, and there are definitely um, prospects for EU member states to have bilateral interests that conflict or undermine um, EU interests as a whole, so you mentioned fishing as a really good example, um, how, how do you see that playing out? Um, what do you think the prospects are for Tension between uh, EU interests and then bilateral relationships interests. Great, thanks. So quite a quite a few questions. Shall we start? I will make a comment on the room for regional actors. I think here there is a difference between the the western part of the middle and the eastern part. You know, in the western part, you are right. How the EU is more active, but when you look at the eastern part, you know. Uh, look at Syria or Lebanon or you know or Iraq now, you know, you'll see that you know there is an increasing influence of Iran, for example, and or Turkey and and, and also I think one should also look at emerging transregional party affiliations. This is a new tendency in the region. For example, when you look at the Turkish governing party, you know, justice and the old party now. It has all kinds of trans-regional party affiliations with different fractions of Muslim Brotherhood. You know. 
all over the region, and this is a new development. Really. And you also mentioned the rise of the Salafi movement and you know the relations between the Egyptian Salafi movement and Saudi Arabia. You know, and there are close connections there as well. This is a new trend in the region, which is not influenced by the EU. See, this is this is an, a quite a, a new regional kind of a uh, relationship, and there are new political tendencies, new political parties. Nearly most are religiously oriented, and but there are all kinds of nuances now in, in terms of these religious, you know, orientations, and and they are looking at each other. You know, and that I know that the Turkish, for example, governing party is all over the region in terms of all these party affiliations and the members of these parties come to Turkey. Mm-hmm. And the, the governing party of Turkey has, you know, all kinds of training sessions mm-hmm. with these, you know, new emerging kind of political tendency. The Syrian opposition is now organized in Turkey, in Istanbul, you know, I mean, and, and, and the, the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood, you know, mm-hmm. is, is in Turkey you now, in Istanbul. This is such a new phenomenon, really, you know, in, the, in the region. You know. And the whole, and there is a, a, a major constitutional debate in the region. Tunisia, Egypt, all over, and also in Turkey. Yeah, we also have a major constitutional debate now. We'll see how these will be linked to each other, and we need to probably make a comparative study of this constitutional debate in the, in the region. Because for a long time there were no, there was a certain, as you were saying, a uniform outlook, you know, looking at all kinds of Islamic tendencies and putting them all together, you know. Now, probably the, one of the important developments in the present context is that there are all kinds of nuances now in the, in the Islamic movements. And one should also look at the Turkish Islamic movement in that sense. And that's one of the reasons why there's such a study of of the Turkish Islamic or religious-oriented tendencies in the region, you know, because Turkish Islamic or religious-oriented tendencies, they have evolved in a way that, that others are looking whether you know, they could take certain examples from that, you know, which, is, which is quite an interesting phenomenon, really, which is very new, really, for all of us. You know, but there is not much research in this area. There is not much you know, thinking. But, you know, when you look at what's going on on the grounds, you know, there's a, there's a lot of activity going on, you know. I can observe this in, in, in Ankara, in Istanbul, you know. In Istanbul, in the last three or four months, you know, I attended probably more than 20 meetings, you know, on, on the neighborhood, you know, on the, on the Middle East, in, in organizing Istanbul and people from the region coming to Istanbul to discuss all these issues, you know, which is, which is quite new for us as well, you know, I mean, as, as, as the academics in Turkey. Okay. I think it's interesting you asked about who, who's taking the initiative, because my reading, again, this fits into the generational shift, is the younger generation of all is saying, we're taking the initiative. In other words, it's not for Europe to launch or cajole or wag fingers or push us or instruct us in anything. In many, in many ways, it's a sign that those who have, through educational opportunities or whatever, had strong links one way or another with Europe, have internalized the lessons from Europe. And actually, the parallel is very much with the nationalist movements 
uh, across North Africa, I think in particular, particularly Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, who having been promised all sorts of things by the French as colonial and protectorate powers, that you'll be represented in Parliament, you know, if you speak French, you'll get good jobs, you'll be treated as equals. Suddenly the penny dropped, they would never be treated as equals. And so that's when they became, right, well, we'll get rid of the French, we're going to assume responsibility for ourselves. The problem was the economic model of each state was so dependent already and structured like spokes of the wheel, uh, particularly the, those under French control with France, and to a lesser extent Italy and Spain, that that's the model that was persisted. So I think the next generation is entirely this, the exploration, both in person and online, of other models, Turkey being front of line, not just politically, but also economically. What is it about what Turkey has done since the 1980s to get out of a high inflationary hole? You know, people have forgotten this take Turkey in the 1980s. Unfortunately, you know, how did it become, how did it end up with a 10% growth rate? We want something, you know, some of what they've got. So they will be looking on their own initiatives, it seems to me, for partners. And only when, you know, in this transition phase, and of course Egypt is in dire straits financially. I mean, they have a liquidity crisis, so they've had to go to the IMF even though they didn't want to for loan, and even that's not going to be enough. So in the short term, there will be frictions over this. But I think the vision emerging is that, right, the sky's the limit. We're going to go and talk to Los Indignados, not the Spanish government. We're going to go to Chile and talk to the student revolutionaries there. You know, if they, can, if they can't do it in person, they'll do it online. So I think that's, that's what I find is interesting. And I don't yet think the institutional and framework approach of the European Union is quite caught up with that yet. They're still in the older generation of saying, we need to structure things, we need to have things in place, agreements. That's not where this younger generation is at all. If they can say, look, here's a funding line for small and medium enterprises, or here's a visa so you can come do filmmaking with you know, your Dutch, Moroccan, Franco, Belge, British counterparts with a couple of Irish doing the animation, They'll, they'll sign up to it straight away. If it means waiting six months and filling in forms and, you know, forget it, we'll find somebody else to do it. That's, that's what I'm picking up. It's called the buzz. <laughs> There's a definite buzz going around. And it's not just middle classes either. I mean, it's mostly middle classes, obviously. But, you know, there's this sense of, you know, we're taking the initiative and the world has to recognise what we've done. Um, so in, in turn, I can move on to what cards does the EU have to incentivise countries? At the moment, not many, for the very reasons you've given, unless there is a fundamental rethinking of the benefits of mobility on the European side, and there are huge benefits for Europe taking a much more flexible and circular and, you know, mobility as opposed to migration, you know, as a constructive and creative benefit for Europe's own financial crisis, for Europe's own growth. We talk a lot about European finances and the euro crisis, no one, as far as I can see, has come up with a solution to Europe's own growth model. So we haven't got anything to export in that sense to North Africa, and we may well find ourselves looking to them, actually, for a few ideas and small and medium enterprises shortly. I'm a bit ambitious, maybe in the next five, ten years. But I, I do see this, I'm in the tectonic plate school of thought over this. I think there's something uh, fundamental going on. And uh, did the European Union have an alternative approach to take uh, pre-Arab Spring? Well, let me just put it like this, since we're having a good day with the French. <laughs> President Sarkozy definitely had a choice of turning up in Tunis, slapping Ben Ali on the back and making speeches about la politique de tout va bien. 
In other words, reassuring Ben Ali and the Tunisian public that everything was fine and dandy in Tunisia because liberalizing economics, particularly in recent years where it was blindingly obvious to anyone who spoke to a taxi driver, let alone an official or anybody else in Tunisia, because people were talking. Uh, and there were two million members of uh, adherents, what do they call them, new member of Facebook? Anyway, people signed up to Facebook who they couldn't block all at once. Two million users of Facebook is quite a lot to control. People were debating and discussing the fact that it wasn't too banking at all. And the French persisted to do this when clearly they must have had information on was. They chose to do this, and we can have another seminar at some other stage about the decade of, you know, the last decade which was securitized, which was all about controlling Al-Qaeda, mobility, the, the fallout from 9-11. That's where Europe was in terms of priority of policy, and they could have chosen to wake up and listen a bit more and realize the way things are moving. Yeah, um, just to see, pick up the an earlier point that was made about history, I mean, that mm, yeah. we largely we got around that, but I think um, there's an awful lot to say, I think, about, say, the 1950s, um, not just in Egypt, but the fact that um, Tunisia and Morocco achieved their independence with very little disruption, conflict, struggle. Um, whereas Algeria and, um, was a very different case, and um, Egypt's got its own particular history, and that, that is very important. It does affect EU perceptions of what can be done and where it's going to get its fingers burnt, um, etc. Um, did Barcelona help bring the Arab, Arab Spring? Clearly, that, the Arab Spring wasn't, especially where there have been insurrections, that wasn't what the EU was wanting um, or its partners. Um, nonetheless, I think one can say some positives in that um, I think the third basket of Barcelona process, what was done in, at the cultural level through the uh, Analytic Foundation, um, what was done in terms of supporting um, civil society organisations uh, did have some impact, although it, I think the, the criticism would be that it mainly assisted NGO elites and didn't get down to the grassroots, which obviously have been quite important in the um, in some of the countries. Um, and the EU restricted its bottom-up attempts, which it didn't really persist with, um, to secular organisations and was um, completely um, reticent about Islamist organisations, even even those that were relatively pro-European. Um, economic reform agenda as well, I think. That, that, that it could be argued this helped bring uh, things yeah. about because it failed, um, you know, uh, but it disrupted things yeah. um, and so on. Um, the three M's, gosh, that trite little phrase, you know, this, you know, this is the best that we can actually offer. Um, it doesn't work in French either. No, no. Um, and yeah, for Catherine Ashton to go to North Africa and say, you know, what, what is Europe's response? It's the three M's, you know. Yes. Not, not brilliant, you know, not visionary or anything. Um, but markets, I think, is an area where still change could be made, and that's why I alluded to this Moroccan agricultural liberalisation um, thing. In many ways, that's far more important than the programmes that the EU has beefed up mm. in support of democracy since the... Um, Spring. spring. Can we put in a good word for spring? Wonderful, wonderful oh, yes. policy Program. initiative. Support for partnership, reform, and integrated growth. Anyway. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs>
That doesn't work in French either, in yes. Spanish. Primavera. <laughs> Primavera. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, I'll leave all right, um, thank you very much, everyone. We had a, a wonderful discussion about uh, the EU. Well, it didn't end up in, in, in sort of total despondency, mm -hmm. which um, uh, sometimes these things can be the ESDP roundtable in a couple of What a complete and utter dismissal of anything worth uh, discussing about ESDP. But this, this ended up with quite a bit of sort of of optimism, we can, we can hopefully believe in youth, which most of you all are, if you belong to the young uh, generation, and, and perhaps there is some, some hope there, the young of Europe can connect with the young elsewhere. Um, but anyway, thank you all very much uh, for participating, and uh, all those who, uh, who came as well, thank you very much.